Amen, and please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. You also find the text for the message this morning on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's passage. We'll be looking at um, the section of verses 13 through 21 this morning. This is part two of a two-part sermon from this text. Last week we looked at verses 13 through 16, and this week we will look at 17 to 21. Peter outlines for us in this section four steps, four actions that we can walk in, if you will, to grow in our holiness. The topic on hand is holiness and our growth in it. And so he gives us four points that we can put into practice. And then he'll spend the rest of the book telling us how to practically live this out in various circumstances. And if we remember, his original audience is one facing significant trials, um, going through um, many difficulties all at once as they've been dispersed as they have been cast out and they are now trying to live as Christians in, in foreign lands. And that is what we have before us this morning. We also remember from last week that holiness is something that will take all of us, our minds and our body, fully. It is not something that we can accidentally luck into. In fact, growing in our love, knowledge, and obedience of God will collectively take each one of us, it is the call of the church and of each individual. It will take full effort. We also need to remember as we consider that, that it's not our standard that we're trying to achieve, but it is God's standard. We cannot and we must not let the world define who we are as Christians. We must let God define who we are and who we are to be. We are seeking to be holy because God is holy and he says we are his. Well, this morning we will continue in that thought as we read our passage. Would you please follow along with me as I read God's word? First Peter chapter one, and I will actually want to start at verse 13 and read through um, the end of our section for today. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever and will accomplish everything he has set out for it. May we now go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, 
May we see your glory this day through the songs that have been sung, the prayers that have been offered, the confession of our faith, the assurance of our pardon, the fellowship with one another. Through all of these things, O Lord, may we have already gotten a taste of your glory and what it means to fellowship in Christian fellowship. For it is only when we see ourselves in light of you that we can pursue holiness and live as you've called us to live. It is only by your Spirit that these things are granted to us. So pour out your Spirit this morning, this hour, O Lord. We ask this for the sake of your people, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 16 really brings this topic to bear. We mentioned this last week, but today we will spend more time focused on this. Our desire and our ability to pursue holiness is tied directly to God's holiness. He is holy, and he calls us to be holy in all of our conduct. So, to understand holiness and how to be holy, we must understand God. We need to study him. We need to commit ourselves to him and to his word. It's why Peter has spent so much time in his introduction speaking about Christ and Christ's sacrifice on behalf of his people. The grace that we, we read from last week and, and we just heard earlier in our passage is given by and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The standard that we're called to live by was lived out by Jesus. Not in a what-would-Jesus-do sort of way, but more in a go-and-do-likewise sort of way. This morning, we will see the last two actions that we can take toward holiness in our lives. These last two steps will draw us closer to God. Because we cannot be holy on our own. Instead, we must seek His grace and His mercy. The first action we will see this morning is to remember. Remember, your holiness has already been bought, and it was bought by the blood of Christ. We find that in verses 17 to 19. And then our second action is to trust. Trust God as the source of faith as the source of hope, and as the source of holiness. We find that in verses nine, or 20 and 21. And so remember and trust. That is what we will spend our time with this morning. Let us begin by remembering. Peter, in our section this morning, 17 through 21, he continues his discussion of holiness by reminding us of the Father's role as judge. And this is important. It's important because some people work best by promise of reward. Here's the standard and here's what you will receive for following the standard. While others work best out of fear of punishment. Here is the standard and here are the consequences for failing this standard. And done rightly, both can be effective at promoting growth. Um, this was certainly the case in a school setting, and those of you that have taught have certainly know how to use both of these. I had some students that I taught the first day of school would come up to me and ask, what are your rules for extra credit? I 
don't know what we're doing tomorrow when you want the rules for extra credit. That's a bit much for the first day. But they wanted to know. They needed the standard, right? How am I going to get ahead, achieve more, accomplish greater? I need to know so I can start working on that now. I had other students, and students I loved dearly, still that the same first day, what are your rules for discipline in this class? And with all sincerity, they were asking the same question that the first students were. How can I stay in line, not fall behind, keep the status quo? How can I flow along with the class without falling below the standard? I don't want the punishment, and I need that in my life as a, as a, a subtle threat to keep me going. And I loved both sets of students dearly. Two motivations that ended up getting to the same result. And we all need this in different times in our life. And it's, we have to be careful not to think of one as positive and one as negative in a sense. Because I would argue that the Lord uses the same methods. Sometimes the Lord says, here is what you will obtain for obedience. Here is what you will achieve, what you will receive, what will be blessed for doing it. And then other times the Lord says, if you fail in these areas, if you miss the mark, here are the consequences. We get a little bit of, of that dichotomy here. Um, Peter's saying, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And as we read that, it's important to note he's specifically talking to Christians. Only Christians call God Father. We're not talking about the lost who should fear the judge because they will face eternal punishment and damnation. They should fear the judge, but here Peter is talking to the church. And let's define that for a moment because a lot of times when we hear the word fear, it's such a negative emotion, it's such a negative reaction. It's like, don't be afraid. Um, it's, it's such a common phrase and thought in our culture that I think it'd, it'd do us well to get a biblical understanding of fear. The Bible, in fact, many times calls us to fear God. Proverbs 1, 7, uh, one of the more famous passages, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise instruction. Psalm 111, verse 10, says the same, and then adds this, to practice fear means... One has good understanding. Proverbs 19.23 says, To fear the Lord will lead to life. Proverbs 14 goes even further and says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And notice, in all of these passages we're called to fear, but there's a specific fear. It's not a fear of our circumstances. It's not a fear of what may happen to us. It's a fear of the Lord. It's a wise, intentional, reverent fear. It's a fear that comes from knowing the Lord holds us and the whole of our world in the palm of His hand. He has the power of life and death. He is our maker and our creator. Ultimately, to fear God is to not fear anything else. And again, we remember the audience he's talking to, these dispersed Christians facing theological persecution, facing literal physical persecution, 
facing all sorts of trials and heartaches, Peter is saying your need right now is to fear God more than your circumstances, than your oppressors, than the confusing theology, than the wrong ideas that are surrounding you, than the uncertainty of the future. Fear God, for He is the judge. You know, this is a topic that we need to understand and we need to to spend some time remembering what it means to fear the Lord. An example that is very personal to my life, when my father received his cancer diagnosis and we had a very honest conversation about it, and he said this to me. He said, son, God has set a time for my life. This cancer will not take me unless God has willed it so. If he has, there's nothing I can do about it. If he hasn't, there's nothing to worry about. And either way, I must live. That's what it means to rightly fear God. That's what it means. If God wills it, there's nothing we can do or anyone here can do to stop it. And if God wills it not to be so, there is nothing that can be done to get in its way. To rightly fear God orients everything else. And it puts it all into place. Now, if we turn back to Peter... And with that kind of understanding of what fear is, he ties it to our holiness. He says, fear God, for God judges impartially according to each one's deeds. <laughs> this again draws my mind back to the classroom. One of my most quoted statements, your behavior is not contingent upon the behavior of others. Act right because you're supposed to act right. Please don't tell me it was someone else. Please don't tell me it's what they did or they didn't do. You are called to right living. When we expand that to our Father, our God who judges impartially, we recognize God will not judge you for someone else's behavior. God weighs your life in His hands. He calls you, each of you, individually to fear Him. And this is vital for our discussion of holiness. I cannot make you holy. And my lack of holiness on the day of judgment will not bear upon yours. God has called you to holiness, each of you individually, to live holy lives before Him. And we get in trouble, we really do, when we start doing comparative theology. And I believe it comes from a wrong understanding of fear. But we'll say things like, well, I'm not that bad compared to so-and-so, or I'm much better off than that person. No, no, please, go back. What does Peter say? Peter quoting the Lord. You shall be holy for I am holy. Your neighbor's not the standard. God is. If you really want to do some comparative theology, ask yourself, how am I holy compared to him? How do I mash up to his standard, to his law, to his rule? And what that will do is that will drive you back to where we started. Fear the Lord. Because he is the judge. He is impartial, but he is a judge. And he will weigh our lives and what we've done with them. And as we're talking about this topic of holiness, becoming like the Lord in our thoughts, words, and deeds, isn't that important? That our lives look like his word, his standard. Isn't it important that we make his goals the goals of our life? Now, why would Peter give this message to the church. You would, often, you would almost think that's a kind of an anticlimactic message to these poor folks 
these dispersed Christians. But let me give you a few reasons why this is actually encouraging. As we read earlier, throughout the Proverbs, fear of the Lord provides wisdom, safety, life, knowledge, and comfort. And don't you think that's exactly what that church needed? Don't you think those are the things they needed the most? Don't you think they craved safety and security? Well, we can answer that by asking ourselves, what do we as a church need the most today? What do we as Christians in this world want more than anything else? Is it not wisdom and safety, life, knowledge, and comfort in our God? With all that's going on politically, aren't we at a place where we wish this for the world and for the church universal? Has this not been your prayers this week? It's been mine. And lest we forget, Peter, so beautifully, anchors all of this in the cross. He, he calls our mind to fear God. He calls our mind to the judgment of God. And he calls us to obey him. And then brings it back home, saying, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that with a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You who are in Christ have been bought. You've been ransomed. You have been paid for in full. You do not belong to the feudal ways of your forefathers. You are the children of the Most High God. And oh, if I could get you to believe something this morning, it would be to believe this. You were not cheap. You were not bought with silver or gold, something that's here today and gone tomorrow. You were bought with the blood of Christ, the sacrificial lamb, without blemish or spot, life for life. It hurts me deeply. And, and people, and, and we are really prone to this. We talked about this in the Sunday school hour. When we make little of ourselves, even as Christians, when we sell ourselves short, and oh how the world attacks young people in this regard. They're always looking for someone or something to place value in their life. And these things never satisfy. They always fall short. And I'm not picking on the youth. We as adults, we're just as prone. We have our sports teams, our businesses, our fitness, and many other things in our life that we hold as value and worth and identity. But dear Christians, please don't sell yourself so short. God's standard is holiness. And He will see it through. You will be holy. For He is holy. And He's called you to live like Him. We know that because it's already been paid for. The payment has been weighed. And it's been sent out. We're simply awaiting the full receiving of that. And so in light of that, what is a lifetime of trials and struggle compared to an eternity as holy beings with our God? Doesn't that make it worth it? Doesn't that ease it just a little bit? It should. It should. And this is why Peter encourages the church through this warning. This is why he reminds them to fear God. It's because by fearing God, we're placing our trust in Him and Him alone. For He is our ultimate source of faith. 
of hope and of holiness. And with this as our final action step we can take, and we find it in our last two verses. Would you look with me now as we shift from remembrance to trust? Peter offers his fourth action step toward holiness by again turning our attention to God. And consider this. If you've been with us for some time, we um, this year have gone through the book of Genesis. God has laid out the entire plan from the beginning. Before the beginning. Before the foundations of the world, God laid out His plan of salvation for His people. God's plan of redemption is not surprised by our current trials and hardships. In fact, God's plan is accomplished through those moments and through those seasons of difficulty. Our growth in holiness has been laid out from the beginning. And if we need evidence of this, we only have to look to the plan of salvation carried out by Jesus himself. And Peter offers several um, lines here to remind us of just what had to happen, what had to take place, what had to come together for his plan to be fulfilled to give us assurance that the Lord will see us through. First, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And Calvin, as he often does, he speaks to the beauty of the eternality of Christ and his connection to salvation by saying this. I couldn't summarize it, so just bear with me. Hence God ordained, according to his wonderful wisdom and goodness, that Christ should be the Redeemer, to deliver the lost race of man from ruin. For herein shines more fully the unspeakable goodness of God. He anticipated our disease by the remedy of his grace. He provided a restoration to life before the first man fell into death. Do you hear what he's saying? The remedy preceded the cause. The Lord, in his plan, in his wisdom, in his goodness, knew how man would act, that man would fall, that he would need salvation, that he would need redemption. And so even before any of it was laid out, any before any of it was carried out, the eternal counsel of our triune God, an agreement was made. We will save them. If we go down this road, this is what it's going to take. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit said, and we'll carry it out. We'll see it through to completion. The remedy preceded the disease. And Christ didn't remain in his heavenly state. Instead, we're told, and Peter continues, he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Have you imagined? Have you taken time to consider what that would take for Christ to get off the throne, to take off his robes, to tell the heavenly host, the heavenly angels, no, you stand down and you let me live and suffer and hurt. You let me go without. You let me struggle. You let me minister to these people. Have you considered what it cost our Savior have you considered the price that has been paid for you? He became like us in every way that we might be saved. 
And in that, he lived as the perfect example of holiness. So that we would know what holiness looks like. And that we might even have a chance at achieving it. We cannot be holy if we do not know and love our God. We cannot know and love our God without Christ dying on our behalf. The only way that Peter can call us to be holy is because Christ died, because he rose again. And he did it for you. For your sake, he was made manifest. And what did that produce? Through him, believers in God. Through him, believers in God. You and I who believe, believe because of Christ and his sacrifice and his humbling of himself and him coming into this world. We're made believers through faith in him and his sacrifice. We place our lives upon in his hand. We reject our own strength, our own ability, and our own means for his. Christ. Christ is our path to holiness. Christ is how we grow in our love and knowledge of God. Christ has served as our example of what it means to be a man who loves his God and follows him, submits to the law, and fulfills it completely. And then Peter broadens his theology a little bit to show us the work of the Father. He then turns to the Father who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Christ was glorified in his act. Christ was elevated above all. That was his place anyway. It was rightfully his from the start. But God says, no, you will sit at my right hand and all will know there is no name above your name. There is no one above you. But why? Why? Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith, so that your hope is in God. For you. Can you weigh that this morning? Can you really and truly weigh that today? Christ was raised from the dead. Christ was given glory for you. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But he gives it. The fact is, is that Christ was raised and glorified for our faith and for our hope. This assures our faith and our hope. Paul says it well in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We today as the church, we are hoping that God will sanctify us. We are hoping that God will make us holy. And don't miss the tense of that verb there. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. It's certain, it's guaranteed. If you, if you looked at the Greek, um, in that verb, is it's already done. It, it's already completed. We're just waiting for the benefits of it. It is that certain. You will be holy, for I am holy. I want to make two practical conclusions of our passage for the church today, this morning. One, no matter what problems we face as a church and as a community, the answer is the gospel. Quite simply, quite plainly, the answer is the gospel. It has always been the gospel and it will always be the gospel. 
who we are in Jesus Christ will be the most important truth that we can have and know and hold to. Whether it's persecution from the world, from the government, whether it's hardship at the loss of job and loss of life, no matter the problem. We know that because the very churches that Peter was writing to, that's what they were facing. Persecution from the government, loss of job, loss of life, uncertainty with the future, and to them he writes, the answer is the gospel. And so we can be assured that no matter what we face, the answer is still the gospel, and what good news that is. Our holiness depends upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a good reminder that we've been created for eternity. Secondly, we must see the value of who we are. It is easy to take that too far, and so I ask us to be careful. But at the same time, we have to understand those in Christ are heirs to an eternal kingdom. You are children of the Most High God. You have a name, an identity. You belong to something greater than this world, greater than yourselves, greater than your life, greater than your circumstances. And you do yourself and you do others a, a disservice when you sell yourself short. I'm not worthy, I'm not worth it, I'm not good enough. In some ways, no, you're not. In other ways, you're children of the Lord. And that serves as our hope and our strength and our encouragement. This means we must look at the world differently. We must look at the lives of others differently. How would Jesus have us live today, right now? Which is easy to do when we realize what has been paid. You are worth far more than you give yourself credit for. The Bible calls you a holy people. All because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And by His strength and through His work, you can live it out. And even more so, the Bible says you will live it out in the day until the day of his return. That is his promise for you today, dear brothers and sisters. That's what the Lord offers you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, what a promise. What a source of hope and encouragement, of strength. Lord, I do confess it, it's easy to utter these words and yet knowing the trials that some of my brothers and sisters are facing, even now in this, in this hour, it is difficult from a worldly sense, Lord. But may we trust in you greater than the world that we live. May we long for you more than the cares of this world. May who we are in you fill us, give us purpose and hope, and may you make us holy that we might live, endure these seasons of trials, these seasons of difficulties, these seasons of hardship, that you might be glorified in it all. Lord, we praise you for even letting us play a part in your plan. We love you, O Lord. We cling to you now in each and every moment of each and every day, saying, if you will it, it will be done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.